The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for the chance to gather here to hear your word now and to meet with you over it. And I thank you in, in particular for the ability to sing that song before coming to this passage because that, that is such an appropriate song. It's what, it's what your passage here before us today is about. That you would move us to the place where as we, as we say those words, they uh, deeply, profoundly characterize us. That we believe that Christ is ours forevermore. That's what we're about that's where our life is found in Him. That we would be a people who live that out now, who walk in that, who experience it now, and who then know it for our great delight for forever. That's what you're doing in us. And so please do it. Our thanksgiving becomes our request. Thank you for doing that. Please do it. Make Christ ours forevermore. Make us live in that, and use the passage this morning in some way towards that end. Make it clear, and lots of details here, Lord. Make them, make them clear enough that we can hear what you're saying and be grown up by it for our good and for your glory. That's what I ask, and I'm thankful that you will do. Amen. This morning we return to the book of First Peter, where we left off a few weeks ago in chapter 4. As you may recall, a lot of this book has been dealing with difficulty or persecution or hardship of some sort, some sort of suffering that the Christians that Peter's writing to and us, in fact, all Christians, that some sort of trial that we face living as exiles here in this world that is no longer home because we've been claimed by Christ. I've seen a, that be a frequent topic throughout First Peter, and that's the topic again this morning at the end of chapter 4. In some ways, similar to what we've seen, and in other ways, a little bit different. A lot of what Peter has told us so far about suffering and trial and hardship is, is that we need to remain faithful in it and keep loving others and doing good while we look forward to the future that's coming. And some combination of that's been throughout this book and is here in some way this morning. But there's also this, a little bit more. A big picture an explanation in the big picture sense about what's going on behind or perhaps maybe beneath or above, whatever way you want to think of that, kind of the big picture behind the suffering of Christians here in God's world. An explanation is offered here that may challenge us. We tend to think, probably, we tend to realize, you know, bad things happen, Bad people do bad things to us. We don't exactly know why, but it happens. And God, for his part, sustains us through that, through all the bad things that happens, against the bad circumstances and against the bad people. That's how we usually think. Is if we've got a line here, and bad is on one side, and bad people and bad circumstances, and then we are on the other side, and this is coming at us, and God's on our side, 
pushing with us, pushing back the bad, helping us, fighting against it. That's how we tend to think about it. However, the God who is the creator, sustainer, and ruler of all things everywhere at all times is actually on both sides of the line. Kind of work that through. Not saying at all, of course, that God causes evil, but it's not that God's only in part of the world pushing against. God's everywhere, and the doctrine of providence tells us that he is at work in and through all things to accomplish his purposes. He's on both sides of the line, not just one side. That gets maybe odd or hard to think about, especially if you get specific. But that's here. We're going to think about that a little bit this morning, and as we do then, we're going to see the passage then calls for two responses to that truth. Faith, our need for it, God's determination to grow it in us, and then maybe, oddly, unexpectedly, a call to rejoice in suffering. That's what we're going to be considering today at the end of 1 Peter chapter 4. The big picture behind Christian suffering and hardship and the responses of joy and faith. So, let me read the text. This is verses 12 to 19. It's a long passage. There are a lot of things in it. I'm going to read the whole passage, and then we'll draw out three observations from it. 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will Entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. First Peter 4. So three observations. Here's the first. Don't be surprised at any fiery trial, for the day of God's judgment has begun. Don't be surprised at any fiery trial, for the day of God's judgment has begun. Verse 12 begins, beloved, which seems to indicate that Peter is sort of mentally beginning a new section. He, he did this back in chapter 2, verse 11. He starts off with something new by, by kind of reminding us, beloved, what's going to come is going to be difficult. And so he kind of puts it out there, you are loved of God. You are objects of his love. So you are. So beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Peter, right into a big wide area, can't know everything that's going on with everybody who's ever going to read this letter. 
He probably has persecution in view here, as the following verses kind of indicate being insulted or reviled for the name of Christ, suffering as a Christian. He probably has persecution in view, but he knows this much. Big, bad, hard things happen to Christians all the time. Very hard things. And so what we're going to see here can be applied to persecution and to lots of different stuff. Hard things happen. And it's probably good, in your mind at least, to know the word fire is here and should be held on to. Some of our translations say painful trial. It actually says fiery trial. And that's helpful because it reminds us of chapter 1's fire, refining, testing precious metals that Peter used there to talk about God refining, purifying our faith. That's what's being echoed here as the trial by fire comes upon you to test you, it says. A test which reveals and refines something. Fire comes to test, which means there's an intention, there's a purpose there, which means someone sent it on purpose. It isn't random. It's not just that bad people do things and stuff happens. And it's not that this is sent by bad people who are aiming to destroy us or hurt us or crush us. That sure happens, yes. But as we follow this through, we kind of are approaching the big picture here. As much as we only think about fiery trial as random stuff that happens or only think about as what bad people do to us, we're missing something that we're supposed to know and therefore not be surprised by. We're supposed to know this and then respond well to it. Now, a proper response, again, is going to be the next two observations, but first, here's the big picture. Of course, this is not strange. This is not unexpected. This is normal, not only because we live in a fallen world with people who do things. That's true. But there's more here. We shouldn't be surprised because of verse 17. This is the big picture. Framing each of our, the you know, big thing here that frames each of our, of our small, individual, little lives here. And as I say that, I, I don't mean that our small, little lives are inconsequential. I just mean that, that compared to the big picture, they are small. The big picture shapes me, shapes you. Here it is. For it is time. This is the time for judgment to begin at the household of God, he writes. And more literally, the wording, and the literal wording is helpful here again, it's time for judgment to begin from the house of God. When you, when you hear that phrasing, you maybe you think, house of God, that's about the temple. And you know what? That's actually in the Old Testament. It, it becomes, when you grab the literal here, it becomes clear. He's alluding to a couple of passages in the Old Testament, especially Ezekiel chapter 9 and Malachi chapter 3. You can look at those later, Ezekiel 9 and especially Malachi 3. But in both those places, the Lord is speaking about end times things using an end times perspective and end times, I mean, Old Testament perspective and Old Testament language. But here's what it says in the language of Malachi. And as you hear this, I don't think it's hard to connect the dots. 
Malachi writes, suddenly the Lord's messenger, the messenger of his covenant, will come to his temple, to the house of God. And he will be like a refiner's fire. And he will purify. He will purify the priests of the Lord in the temple. He will purify them like gold and silver, and then they will bring righteous sacrifices of worship to God. And then after that, out from the temple, the judgment of God will spread to those who are not priests in the temple of God. That's what God said would happen. And he put it in writing hundreds of years before. So, Peter's kind of saying, so beloved, don't be surprised. Where are we right now in, in this, the movement of God's foretold history? Where are we? Well, the messenger of the covenant has come, and we are right in the middle of that fiery judgment of the priests in the house of God. That's where we are right now. Beloved, you kingdom of priests here in God's household, that's where we are. So don't be surprised. He's here to purify. He's here to cleanse. He's here to, to see what is dross in us, bring it to the surface, and burn it away. So that then after that, we will be people who offer righteous sacrifices of worship, people who glorify God. And he does that clearly not to destroy us, right? But to make us shine. To make us a people who are more like what we're supposed to be and, and to lift up, to make, to make a community that's more like it's supposed to be and to lift up the God who is in the midst of it so that right sacrifices of praise are offered. He does it for our good and for his glory, in other words. That's what's going on. And to be sure, the doctrine of providence is really helpful here because it, it reminds us that God uses all things on both sides of that line to do this. He's the one true God who reigns and he uses all sorts of people and all sorts of circumstances, working through them and even through their sin. Even through their sin. He does that works through it to accomplish his purposes. They may well mean it for evil, but he means it for good. Joseph's words at the end of Genesis are helpful to us always. All that they do for evil, God means it for good to serve his good purposes in our lives for our good and for his glory. We should get that from verse 17 and its connection to the Old Testament. We also should get that from chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. If you recall, and if you don't recall, you can just flip back and look. It's pretty much what verses 6 and 7 are also saying. He's told us this sort of thing before, without the addition of the Old Testament and the, and the, the period of the, of the judgment. But he mentioned this before, that there would be times when God deems it necessary that we be grieved by various trials. Remember, this is 6 and 7 that the tested, proven, refined faith, the genuineness of our faith would, 
would be pulled out and would be grown up that would then result in praise and glory and honor to us when Christ is revealed, when he comes. Same point, just clarifying it here in a different way using the, the Old Testament. So, that's what's going on. In all of our fiery trials and in our minor inconveniences, God's purifying judgment of his church. And, and if you have kind of a mental hang-up on using the word judgment with church, it's, it's okay, it's biblical, you shouldn't. But if judgment is a, is a bad word, then use the word discipline. Tie it to sanctification. Same basic idea. God looks on his people, looks on his church, and sees what's wrong there, identifies it, surfaces it, and burns it away. In all kinds of different ways, sometimes in ways that are painful. For sure. But he's doing that to burn away what is dishonoring to him and harmful to us, right? Harmful to us, right? You want to be, you would be greatly blessed to be and will be greatly blessed to be more like Christ than you are now. You would be more fully and truly human than, like you were made to be. More godly in character and in mindset and in your loves and in your desires and what you think about and pursue and long for and lean into and love. What you, what you think about, what you dwell on, to treasure God more and to see God more accurately and to love him more completely and fully and to be weaned off the weak, the weak substitute that the world is. That would be good for you, for me, for us. That will be good for us. To be a people who are whole like God made us to be, who are like Christ, who are godly. And God knows that. And so in love, we, a purifying fire, it's hard to look at that and, and think of it as love and, until you understand that it is the discipline of God for our good. God knows what we need and draws near to us and surfaces it to remove it, to bless us. And to bless his name as the God who did that who made people who shine like the sun, who didn't leave people in the muck, but, it, but drew near and drew us out. That's, that's the goodness of God for you, Christian. He disciplines those he loves. That's what's going on, and that's incidentally why it's not going on elsewhere. The psalmist, you recall the psalm, looks around and says, why are the wicked just having a great time? And not, not, not all non-Christians having a great time, but, but in general, why is the world going like, 
Woof! And I'm like, man, why is that? The answer is, because God's not bothering to discipline them yet. That's the ominous answer of this passage. Yet. When it comes around time, though, to burn out the dross in the world, the ominous implication of the passage is that there's nothing but dross in the world. And when the fiery judgment falls on chaff, there's no grain there. It's just chaff, and it burns up. That's serious. The psalmist gets that when he goes into the temple of God and sees the bigger picture. We're meant to see the bigger picture here and not envy the world and not be surprised by fiery trials that come upon us, beloved. So is that your mindset in the midst of what can be misery? Should be. God has determined at times and in ways, at places, that it it is necessary for us to be grieved by trials, certain types and certain ways. Even terrible evil that is totally wrong, God is still at work in it. He's on both sides of the line to make us like Christ. That's the truth. And the rest of the passage then is about how to respond to that. So here's the second observation. Respond to trial with rejoicing. Looking to your union with Christ. Respond to trial with rejoicing, looking to your union with Christ, not looking to what's being burned up. Looking to your union with Christ. The first response of rejoicing here, it's in the first half, the opposite of this being surprised, 12 and 13. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial, but instead, verse 13, rejoice. Right now, he means. In the middle of the fiery trial, not after it's been favorably resolved. Not once you get to heaven. It's a command about now. Now there is, I'll come back to this, there is some joy about heaven there. But the first command is about now. Rejoice insofar as to the extent that you share in Christ's suffering. There's a little qualifier here that's necessary because of the possibility, like he's mentioned before, and it comes up again down in verses 15 and 16, it's possible that we might suffer for something that's our own fault. I've talked about this before, but of course we, we shouldn't rejoice amidst our own sin. If we're suffering because, use some extreme examples here, if, if you just murdered somebody and you're suffering because of that, you shouldn't be rejoicing then. He, he's just got this important qualifier. Not if it's sin. God will certainly use that. He'll use that to refine us, but that shouldn't draw rejoicing from us. So not that, but to the extent that it's not that, you should see all your fiery trials as something. As sharing in the sufferings of Christ. That's how he describes these fiery trials, sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And that's a statement about a Christian's union with Christ. He doesn't use that language, but that theology suddenly seeps into this passage and shows up repeatedly here. 
kind of in the margins around the actual sentences. So the union with Christ, the idea of union with Christ, let's think about that for just a second. I've used often a very simple illustration of air inside a balloon. I'm sure there are some ways that falls apart, but it's, it's simple and helpful. Air inside of a balloon. And wherever the balloon goes, the air inside of it goes there too. So the air is united with the balloon. It is in the balloon, like we are in Christ. And wherever the balloon goes, the air goes. Whatever kind of heat comes upon the balloon, the air inside experiences that temperature rise also. It's united with the balloon. We are in Christ. And so the suffering is that Christ felt, experienced, walked in, those things come at us, come on us too. We are partners with him. We're united with him in his sufferings, sharing. Like he did, so do we. The Old Testament predicted all this, that the Messiah would suffer, become and be rejected. That happened, and it still does. And when Jesus himself spoke of it and what that would mean for his followers, he kind of gave us fair warning. If they treat me like this, they will treat you like this too. You will share in the same. It's going to come. And so this is one first piece that we need to see here and grab. What's happening is a union with Christ experience. Once you step down from the big picture and you see God at, God at work here to refine me and you come down to your specific thing, one first step that's helpful is to see just like Jesus experienced, just like God the Father brought upon God the Son, me too. Okay. He walked the earth and experienced this kind of thing. Okay. Verse 14, 16, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're attacked or in some way made to suffer as a Christian because you stand for him or you obey him, you speak of him, you represent him, you follow him, and then the world swings against you and opposes when they, they get clear as to what you're actually about. Now, of course, assuming that you're actually about what the Bible is actually about, the Jesus of the Bible, but when that happens, it's actually oddly encouraging because it's pointing out your identity with Jesus. He had that. I have that too because I'm following him. Okay, I'm with him in this. And that should be encouraging, particularly because of what verse 14 says. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, know this. You are blessed. Why? It says, because the spirit of glory the Spirit of God rests upon you. That's also like Christ. That's actually applying to us language that echoes what Isaiah said about the Messiah and the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. Well, you're walking this path of suffering united with Christ. Wherever he goes, you go into hardship. And you know what else? Wherever he goes, you go into the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God rests upon you because it rests upon Him, and you're in Him. And that gets us really down to the bottom level. Here you are, you step into fiery trial, 
And what comes at you is hard. And you look to, you, you, you take this step here. I mean, we talked about this last Sunday. Okay, so I'm not going to look at the trial. I'm going to look to my union with Christ. And I find that, yes, I'm, I'm there with Jesus. What good is that? Oh, and that means the spirit of glory The Spirit of God rests on me right now in the middle of that trial. That means I'm in the middle of this trial, and what has happened is God has drawn up near to me. God has put his arm around me. God has, has in fact, not stood side by side, not put his hands on my shoulders to kind of say, you got this, but put his arm around me and said, like that. I'm still facing it, but what, what's this posture say? If, if, you're a, if you're a child and your dad comes up to you and puts his arm around you and draws you back and, and does this, what's this posture say? You're going to look at this with me, son, daughter, but I'm in front. It's going to come at you, but it's going to come through me, and, and it's going to be okay. I'm not shielding you completely. You're going to feel the heat. But you're going to feel it next to me. You're going to feel my heartbeat. You're going to see my hand in front. It's going to be okay. That's what Peter wants you to look to. Why is it going to be okay? I'm in Christ. The Spirit of the Lord rests on Jesus, comma, on me. And it's the Spirit of glory. Like this is not only a feeling of power. It's a feeling of you kind of see God like this, brothers and sisters. God's not a theoretical concept. God is a person of glory. So when he does this to you, you see the hand, and you, you see the threat coming past him, but you also see radiance because it's the spirit of glory rests upon you. Though the world rages and the world's intimidating and what comes at you is trial and hardship indeed, but the one who stands behind you and rests his hand upon you is glorious and mighty and the lover of you and your soul, beloved. If you will look to that and not say, this, this is the problem, is it not? This is the problem. Yeah, 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 yeah. Never mind, but have you seen this trouble? That's the problem. Yeah, 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 yeah. Look at that. Feel that. Oh. And we mope, whine, rage, get depressed. At least I do. <laughs> At least I do. That's the problem, men and women, because we still are, in fact, too enamored with the world and still too fixed on what's here in it and what's being deprived by the fiery trial. What's burning away in front of me is what I live for. God, help us. That's the problem. May God make the song true of us that Christ would be my life forevermore and that what's being lost here would be okay to be lost because what's upon me is this glorious Jesus, his spirit for you. We look to him. 
identified with him in his suffering, identified with him in his spirit, identified with him then in the glorifying of God, knowing for certain it may look like we are abandoned, abandoned to the grave, but we will be saved. In Christ, he came out of the grave, so do you. This, this is what has to, has to grab our attention here. United with Christ, I'm sharing in his sufferings, and his spirit rests upon me, and so I can live glorifying him, knowing I will be saved. If that is what fills your mind, what will come out of you then is rejoicing. Because it's okay. It's okay. I'm not saying it's pleasant. I'm saying it's okay. There's a big difference there. Grievous, fiery trial may bring all measure of worldly pain. And the, to, to the degree that that is our focus, saying it's okay sounds like lunacy. And it would be. Look to your union with Christ, Christian. This is what he wants us to understand and wants us to see. It's, it's the root of rejoicing now, and it's the promise of great rejoicing later. This is what I skipped at the end of verse 13. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Chapter 1 again has this forward-looking element to it. Same thing repeated here. Rejoicing now, but also rejoicing with great gladness later. Because what you're longing for actually comes. The fullness of intimacy with God comes. This is, this is rejoicing now amidst trouble, and it's rejoicing greatly later after all the trouble is over. Because we haven't lost what we were living for, we've actually gained him all the more. Rejoice amidst trial, looking to your union with Christ. And lastly, this is brief. Respond to trial with faith, looking to the fullness of God. I mean, the faithfulness of God, I'm sorry. Respond to trial with faith, looking to the faithfulness of God. This is verse 19, which if you're tracking with what I'm saying here, you, you could fairly say, you said there were two responses. I think there's actually only one. Yep, that's true. I've made them separate because they're in separate verses, but it's worth noting they're the bookends of the passage. Rejoice at the beginning and then the summary at the end. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, when God wills that it be so, 
Let them entrust their souls. In faith, lay their souls at the feet of God, faithful creator that he is, while doing good. It's, it's the summary verse of what he was just saying. It's actually a fair summary of the whole book. If, if you want to grab a verse for the book, this, this would be a candidate. Faith, entrusting your soul to God, which again is just like Christ. Into your hands I commit my spirit, said the Lord. And what happened? He was initially abandoned, which, bless God, is why this can be true of me and true of you. Because he was abandoned to the grave, because the cross killed Jesus, that's why this can be said of me and you. He was initially abandoned, but he was not left in the grave. He was saved. Boy, talk about barely saved. To be saved after you've been dead for three days is a pretty close call. But not by God's standard, of course. Faith and joy, they're actually two sides of the same coin here. Everything that I was just talking about under the joy section, you could say, when you believe that, that's what produces joy. Faith is the bottom level issue that God is about. And from chapter one, it's the thing that is of greater worth than gold. It's the thing that he's refining in us. It's the, it's the thing that he's pushing on because he knows that of, of all the dross that needs to be burned away in our life, you could sum it all up by saying, what I trust in at the bottom level as a human being is me. And the stuff I can see and the stuff I can put my hands on. And God says, that's the essence of the problem. You you trust you. Entrust yourself to me. I'm the faithful creator. I made everything. I rule everything. I made it all from nothing. I can do anything. I can uphold you. Entrust yourself to me. That's what we most need. Faith. And that's the thing that's lacking when joy is lacking amidst trial. I don't actually believe what we were just talking about. Christian, God is going to deem at times and in places that trial come to you. Don't be surprised. You need it. In the middle of that, then, take your soul and say, I am a poor, hopeless steward of my own soul. Here. I'm going to lay it at your feet, God, and trust that the cross is true, and I am actually united with Christ. I'm going to believe that, and I'm going to look to you and what will come out of that is dependence on God that leads to joy now and great joy in the future. Remember that, beloved. Trust that and don't be surprised by trial, but rather rejoice in it. Let me pray. Father, help us, please. 
we are still, in a lot of ways, a fickle people prone to wander. Help us to believe you and to trust you. To trust that what you say of us is true, what you say about Jesus is true, and to look to that in faith. Do that, Lord, as a way of producing joy for us now in the midst of hardship and joy forever. Help us and carry us and build a church in which Christ is our hope and our treasure now. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.